Welcome to L'Arte de l'Armée, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Today's guest is Fran Loquata, lead instructor of the School of the Swords God Alming chapter, where she studies Bolognese swordplay and rapier since 2010. She also dabbles in Renaissance dagger fighting, bartitsu, and longsword. Fran has taught and competed all across the globe, as well as organizing and hosting a variety of events in the UK, most notably um, by the Sword, which is an annual women's event that's been running since 2017. Fran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So um, tell me a little bit about your martial arts background uh, and how you got started in the Bolognese system. So prior to HEMA, there was no martial arts background. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've said before um, that I was the kid at school that always had a, a note to get out of uh, physical ed, uh, PE. Uh, I, I hated, I detested physical activity. Uh, I didn't have any confidence, but I, I, I'm now a firm believer that there is an activity or a martial art for everyone because nothing has compelled me to become fit and healthy and look after my body like historical fencing has. So um, how did I get into it? Um, I was uh, about eight months pregnant or seven months pregnant with my first child. And I went along to a reenactment event, like a, I guess like a Ren fair type thing that we have over here. And there was a bunch of people, they had a stall um, and they were doing, they were called Scholar Gladiatory. You might've heard of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing a like uh, they had LARP weapons like bof- LARP buffers and little plastic helmets and gambesons, and they were like inviting people to like come and do like a little knockout tournament. Uh, so they got a, a bunch of people and they did like gave gave people these LARP swords. Of course, being heavily pregnant, I couldn't take part. I wanted to, but um, I was there with uh, my ex and some friends, and they all had a go. And uh, a couple of years passed. I had my second child. And um, my, my ex-husband at the time, he, he, it had just sort of sat at the back of his head, like he had this flyer, this, this leaflet from Scholar Gladiatoria. And he, it, they'd said to, to us afterwards, uh, come to our training sessions, we do this for real with steel swords. And we were like, eh. And it was, it was, in, it was in London and we live sort of like 25 miles south of, of London. So it was not really convenient when you've got little children. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, two years on, I'd had my second baby and um, and he just went Googled historical fencing near me. And it turned out that there was a class about 20 minutes drive from us. So uh, he said, oh, wow, I found I found this club and they're called the School of the Sword. And I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take you there. I'll get my folks, my parents to look after the kids for an evening and I'll drive you there I'll, I'll hold your coat and I'll stand at the side <laughs> and watch you do your little class and and they, they like you know there were the club the school of the sword was founded by Caroline Stewart um and she greeted us and uh, she was trying to sort of cajole me into joining in and I was like oh, no and <laughs> he took the class he loved it we went back home and my mum and dad were like, well, how was it? And I said, well, it was great. He did this, he did that. And, and they're like, did you do it? And I said, no, of course not. And they're like, well, you should. You've just been, you know, you've just been locked inside with babies for the last two years. You need, you need a hobby. And I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. 
and you know like the part of me that was kind of going yeah it was really cool (laughs) my parents picked up on that and the other part of me was going nah I can't do that and then of course I went along I got hooked and uh you know 11 years later uh, I've had the school passed on to me and I I run it (laughs) so just got a little you know lots of stuff happened along the way but I'm now um the senior most senior member of the school in the UK um Ollie who's now in Ireland is like the longest sort of running member of, of the school of the sword but um yeah I'm I'm the I'm the longest sort of practicing still in the school person um and it's been a wild ride and uh I don't think I'm gonna quit anytime soon well that's good <laughs> <laughs> So how did you get started with the Bolognese system? Is that something that they were already doing or um, when did you guys start doing that? Yeah, that's that's like their introductory uh, course. So when you join School of the Sword, and this is something that I do as well. So as a lead instructor, I'm mostly working with beginners. Uh, I'm giving people like their first taste of historical fencing. That's my my job. So and when people join the school, we start people out with side sword and buckler from the get-go so you're using uh two weapons uh, a weapon and uh, an offhand uh, uh shield so we've i think looking back at the history of the school its main focus was is sorry the rapier so even though like we got like three chapters um one in oxford one in godalming where i am and one in reading and we've all we all have like the rapier as our kind of totem weapon and because that's what Caroline Stewart and Phil Marshall who were the sort of original founders of the school that's what they were focused on they were translating Alfieri's uh work and but back then in the early 2000s uh rapiers weren't easy to come by at all um and I mean mean, they're still not like you can't just you can't they're not well they are they're easier now than they were but they're not the kind of thing that you can easily equip a bunch of people with on the from the get-go so they in those days the easiest weapon uh, sort of not the easiest the easiest sort of training tool to get get your hands on was a shin eye so we were giving everyone shin eye to be a stand-in for a side sword and training them bolognese uh side sword and buckler um their reasoning being that they i think they started out doing single side sword then they reasoned that it would be better to get people used to using two hands and then going down to one Mm -hmm. single rapier being like the most challenging uh in their opinion like the most challenging um thing to study so that you're, you're you're already used to using two hands so you can go from side sword and buckler then you can go up to side sword and dagger then you can go from dagger and rapier and then you're on to you take the dagger away and then you're on to single single rapier so that's the, the kind of progression that they had in mind and we pretty much stick to that now yeah um it's just that the, the training um the, the training equipment has improved vastly since those days so now you can get really nice um uh synthetic weapons uh for bolognese uh fencing and you can it is easier now to get hold of steel side swords as well that was a i remember getting the first steel side sword i was like wow didn't know you could get that (laughs) (laughs) that was really amazing 
Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, how I got into bolognese. And to be honest, like like I, I said that, you know, with rapier being the focal thing of the group, it bolognese fencing was my comfort blanket for a long, long time. I didn't want to give it up. I was like, can't I just stick with this? I really like it. It's like, no, you gotta you gotta grow up and learn the rapier one day. Kind of thing. So, <laughs> I, I really it is my first love. It's my uh side sword and buckler is my my happy place. It's where I feel is my comfort zone to be honest. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean and that makes sense, right? I mean that's actually pretty much the pedagogical approach of the Bolognese system is you teach is. sword and buckler and then you progress into, you know, all the different variations of weapon sets or sort of additional, uh, you know, offhand weapons and, and different implements. So that's really cool. That's a, it's a cool that, that you guys structure it that way. Um, mm -hmm. So here's the burning question between uh -huh. Morazzo or Manchialino, where do you guys usually start with sword and buckler? Like, who's your well, favorite sword and buckler? Mine, personally, I like Manchelino. Yeah. All of, our, all, all of our, like, beginner stuff is based on his teachings. Nice. And the Tom Leone book is basically our handbook for yeah. folks in the first year. I'm like, just get your hands on a copy of it. Um, and we do, you know, all the cuts, all the guards, according to his teaching. Um, it's a fantastic book. I mean, like the second half of the book is the translation, but the first half is context and, uh, you know, goes through all the weapons uh, of the period and stuff. So you get, it's a, it's a really good, um, gives you loads of really cool background before you actually look at the actual fighting itself. Um, but yeah, all of the guards and the cuts, we go according to Manchelino because I, I like... I like his approach, but we do use Morozzo as well. So with the beginners, the beginner folks who come to us uh, for their first kind of grading, if you like, we ask them to perform uh, a segment of Morozzo's first play for Sword and Buckler. Mm -hmm. So for their first six weeks uh, and onwards, so we have like a six week or it's like a two month um, taster course and then it's like well if you still like it you want to stick with us keep learning this so from day one they'll be learning like a little segment uh, a little step from um that play that uh assalto. and it's just a nice it gives people a really nice feeling of satisfaction i as what i call when people say well, what is this why are we doing this i say well it's kind of like a kata mm -hmm. um it it's something you can practice on your own even though it's written for two people, but you can, yeah. it's something that you can use to polish and refine and practice your cuts and guards. It gives them a kind of framework to sit in. And it means that when you're not in class, you've got something you can practice at home with a, a stick or a butter knife or something in your, <laughs> in your yard or your front room. Yeah. Um, I know, I know I did. So it's, yeah, it's, we, it's mostly a Manchelino, but we too tend to use both of them. We, that, you know that heavy emphasis on the on the performance uh, sort of side of it. We we use Morozzo's source for that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome because I I feel like that's kind of the the way that they're written, right? Like when it comes to like Dalagoki or Manchiolino, um, both of them kind of feel like 
you know, those are meant to be almost drills in the way that you play them out, right? You always get yeah. some sort of an, an attack or a provocation and then you get a counter. And so you, it's sort of this um, conversation, whereas like with Murazzo in particular, I agree because I, I love doing Murazzo's um, sword and buckler, his sword and large buckler um, as a form. Mm -hmm. And it, it's got such a great flow to it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I practice that a lot. It's a good one. Yeah, the way I look at it, I think like Magellino is kind of preparing you for certain attacks, mm -hmm. like like you say, attacks and provocations. Whereas Marozzo is kind of like here's some programs you can run. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like people often say they get that freeze, like I don't know what to do. Yeah, uh, I'm inspiring, whatever. In drilling, fine, you know what you've got to do, but when it comes to sparring, it's like my mind goes blank. I don't yeah. know what to do. I'll just say remember the form. If you ever get stuck. Do the format them. Do yeah. you know mix it up, mix up the chunks of it, uh, and see what they do. Um, so Marozzo is kind of like just run this program and see what happens. Whereas Magellino is like, if this happens, you do X. Yeah. <laughs> so it's well, like a different approach. Yeah, and I think that's what's really cool. Um, and I, I've I've talked about this a few times on the podcast, but you know, I always. I love it when I'm reading through Manchiolino, especially Manchiolino. I've primarily focused a lot of my study on his sword and large buckler stuff, um, which can also be done with the Targa. And what's cool is like, you'll see bits and pieces of Manchiolino show up in Murazzo. So like, mm -hmm. I think it's like the, the third Targa play, um, you know, or it's the second Targa, uh, sword and Targa play in, in Murazzo, where you step across and you cut to their arm and you parry with the buckler and cut to their arm. And that's mm -hmm. basically what Manchiolino tells you to do as a defense, right? But yeah. the thing about Murazzo is, like you said, you, you kind of get to that point and you're like, all right, I've tried to cut to their arm and let's say they void or do something like that. Now you're like, uh, what do I do? And Murazzo yeah. actually gives you the answer because then he's like, oh, just you know, do a false edge and then cut a reverso back across their face. And you're like, oh, okay, that's the progression of the play. That makes perfect sense, you know? Yeah. So it's it's kind of like, you know, looking at the two side by side, you get this this continuation and this beautiful progression that you can kind of follow. Um, and yeah, that's they they work really well together. And I love those two as a source together because uh, they mm. do communicate with each other. It is good to triangulate sources, I think, just to give you some different approaches and understandings to how to translate this written word into a physical movement. It can be very frustrating at times but then getting like another angle on it like goes oh maybe that maybe that's why that's in there maybe that's why it's, it's done that way yeah definitely so when you guys make that progression um <laughs> you know you you said you kind of work from uh, sword and buckler to perhaps like moving on to sword and dagger and then eventually progress into a rapier um is is alfieri your primary source when it comes to rapier or do you guys look at who, who do you guys kind of so Alfieri was the book. Yeah, Alfieri was the book that my uh, predecessors were working on, and we 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 published that. Last uh, Basquerama, um, got it here. Um, yeah. So yeah, we do a lot of Alfieri, but we also look at Fabris, um, and we also look at Giganti. Um, and it, I, you know, I I tend to give my fellow instructors free reign in the, which sources they want to go. I, my, my only sort of, um, <laughs> my only condition is that it's Italian. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I was saying to a couple of folks who came along uh, the other day, like they're saying, 
what do you do you study do you do everything and I'm like well you know history is long and the world is big so we have to narrow it down to yep. something so we we started out doing like 16th 17th century Italy uh, and now we do 15th 16th 17th century Italy because our Oxford branch do like Fiore and stuff and Bardi and things and then we got 15th 16th 17th and 18th century because we're looking at 18th century sabre now yep. from Italy um because people want to do sabre so you know we're trying to sort of like keep it on the uh in that on that peninsula and within those sort of four centuries but yeah so the progression um we tend to like when i started out it was mostly alfieri and fabris uh and then um we as a school we published uh giganti's second book of course and that got us all back into like looking at Giganti's work. So Giganti is another one that we look at. Um, but like, to be honest, like I said, as long as it's Italian and it's in the time period, we'll do it. Uh, one of my colleagues, Mark, he likes to do Agrippa um, because it's Agrippa something no one else has looked at. <laughs> yeah. Bless him. So he's like, he's looking at, um, he likes to do Agrippa because it's, there's this lot of single side sword in there as well, which is something that we don't do an awful lot. We haven't done an awful lot. So he's like, well, let's let's look at it. Let's try it out. So uh, Lynette um, is one of the other teachers where I where I'm based. She's she's a complete Fabris fangirl like me, like just Fabris all the way. Um, I, I really like Fabris because. I just you know, it's just so weird and different. Um, it, it, it's you know you don't have to sort of you can, you can, it's got these like very extreme and odd postures that if you try and go into them it's like you, you can't maintain that for any length of time but it's something to it's it's something to aspire towards and just having that like extreme uh sort of movement does it does kind of line up your body mechanics in the end correctly so i tend to sort of vary between in my po in my my posture i tend to vary between sort of like alfieri giganti fabris if i'm feeling particularly um when i'm when i'm just doing free play that is if i'm feeling particularly adventurous i'll do fabris but if i want to rest <laughs> if i'm <laughs> yeah. feeling a bit tired i'll go alfieri or maybe even capoeira if i just want to sort of um relax a bit more um yeah. i was saying to uh, someone i was teaching on saturday he's like when you do that it looks really intimidating i was like oh no i'm just resting <laughs> <laughs> hey, you gotta love that right <laughs> yeah he said you've got this particular thing where you pull your arm in and you lean like that and it's like oh my god what's she thinking what's she gonna do it's like no my arm aches i'm just gonna pull it into my rest my elbow on my hip like this it's like you look like you're ready to sort of spring at me and do something like that it's just rest it on your arm like that but yeah so yeah fabris giganti alfieri are the sort of ones that we kind of tend to progress on to that's cool so because because you really guys really almost follow this not only like pedagogical approach to the Bolognese system, but also a historical like time frame development. Mm -hmm. How do you see, you know, studying the the later sources, the rapier sources and stuff like that, the progression of like the Bolognese system progressing into rapier and that sort of transition? Like, have you seen that? Do you see that, especially with your students as you teach them? like cuts and the various parries of the Bolognese system and all the guards, right? You go from 
you know, more, I think Morazzo says that he has 26 guards, mm. 26 down to four, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. How, how, do, how do they take that? And like, what is that like kind of teaching that progression and, and how do your students respond to that? Well, you know, there are some people, no, I, I think most people are intrigued by Raper and they want to get into it. Yeah. But there are some people who like, no, I'll stick with side sword, thank you. Because when I started out, we would have like around 12 folks in a class at a time and we would all be doing side sword for six months and then we're going to do rapier for six months. So we're going to do single rapier for six months. Now we're going to do sword and dagger for six months. So everyone do everything together. But when I took over, I, um, I added an additional stream. So I've got like the beginner group and then we've got the, a rapier group and a side sword group. So you could just stick with side sword your entire career if you wanted to. Um, but, you know, most folks are quite happy to switch between the two. For, from a personal perspective, the leap, like I say, the, the, the transition from Bolognese to rapier, I was quite, I was a bit daunted by it. Uh, you know, rapier seemed very advanced. You know, the fact, probably for the fact that my school were like, right, we'll give you this little baby side sword and now you're going to be a big girl and use a rapier kind of thing. I kind of like, <laughs> it kind of felt like, uh, you know, rapier was the advanced weapon. I mean, really, that only came about, like I say, because of like financial restrictions. It's hard to equip a whole bunch of people with rapiers. But, um, and I think initially people might think that side sword is the easy easy one because it's big cuts and stuff and rapier yeah. is difficult because it's point control but you know there's loads of complexity to side swords uh i found and like my, my colleague adrian who teaches in reading he said learning rapier is like hitting a wall like he found it a struggle too but for both of us we really resisted rapier for a long time but then when we got it it was like oh wow yeah. You know, it's like an unlock. It's like it's like it's like such an unlocking of an achievement. It's like, oh my god, everything I I learn after this is going to be so easy. Yeah. It's like it's <laughs> like the only thing I, I often compare languages to. I often compare sword for learning a learning a martial art to learning a language, mm -hmm. and I think learning rapier is like learning Polish because it's so difficult. <laughs> 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 it's so difficult that everything language you learn after that is going to be a piece it's, of cake. yeah it's just a breeze yeah <laughs> yeah so oh you know you like you say you go down from 26 guards down to four and it's like yeah but that's like saying uh because neil gaiman says writing is as easy as putting one word after another uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sorry with all the metaphors here but it's no, cool. uh it's uh yeah it's weird i found it very odd uh my sort of experience of going transitioning from side sword to rapier is that it felt like going it felt like a paradigm shift you know it felt like going from 2d to 3d um yeah. it's the completely different approach um and something else that it makes me think of is like when you take little kids i don't know if they still use this this pedagogical approach when they're teaching little kids how to do handwriting but what they used to do with my kids in little school was they would get them in the in the big like gym and get them to draw big circles like this with their arms like this is an o and like this is yeah. an m kind of thing and get them to do like gross motor movements 
mm-hmm. so that they can then later do fine motor control with their with their pens when they're doing handwriting. And I kind of think of it a bit like that without being patronizing to side sword. It's like you're learning can you're learning these gross gross movements like the, the colpo intero or the colpo mezzo mm-hmm. and then you're going to like the cavazione the point finest control of the point that you can do with a rapier and it's very much like that it's it's going from a large movement to a small movement but the principles are, are the same and the idea is that after a, a while of practicing these large movements and getting like your timing your dis, your measure and, and all the rest of it it still applies to rapier it's just tinier more precise yeah. movements and like you know the margins are like that <laughs> if you mess up in side sword you can you can always parry <laughs> like yeah, oh that yeah. went wrong I, I can parry that you mess up in rapier you've got a sword through your face so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that's always the worst case scenario yeah so i mean do you feel like because you sort of made that progression progressing from studying the bolognese system going into rapier when you go back to Bolognese, do you feel like it actually makes you a better fencer with the, the Bolognese system because you you kind of had that progression? I think so. I, th- I think, you know, lots of people, they say when I've they've been doing rapier for a while and then they go back into side sword, it's um, hard to not rapier the side sword. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, I, I keep thrusting all the time. Well, that's not a bad thing, but, you know, you can cut too. So... I, I think I'm at a stage where I don't get confused between the two. I can switch from one mode to another. But um, I always thought um, that having m- more than one sort of skill is, is only beneficial. So learning more than one um, style is only going to benefit you. Um, what happens, what I've witnessed happen to a lot of people in, in HEMA in particular is they'll pick up the first thing that's available to them, say Bolognese fencing or, or longsword or German longsword, and that's how they identify. Yep. That becomes part of their identity. I am a longsword fencer. I am a rapier fencer. And um, I know I'm guilty of that too. I It kind of allows me, like, if I pick up a longsword, I don't have to be good at it because that's not who I am. (laughs) I don't have to be super good, you know, uh, because, you know, even though I've been doing it for quite a long time, you know, I really ought to sort of be a bit more serious about it. Um, But I do think that going from rapier down, uh, not down, going from rapier across back in time to to Bolognese uh, is, is helpful. And I think it was Cristiani who says that you should practice um spadone three times a week to improve your rapier um three times a week (laughs) wow so like yeah i think i believe i strongly believe that rapier helps longsword and longsword helps rapier um that that kind of like mock antagonism in the community isn't really you know i think there's something something going on there yeah it's it's just tribalism right i mean yeah yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, there's there's a lot to learn. I mean, I guess we all do that, though. I mean, you look at like you know KDF and Fiore, and they like they always butt heads. But if you really look at it, like I always see, like you know Fiore, kind of teaches you the fundamentals sometimes that 
KDF is kind of missing and helps to yeah. really kind of inform why those things could be more dramatic. I mean, that's the way that I've, I've always seen it. And the fact that they they butt heads and, and fight with each other, it just cracks me up because I feel like they have a lot to learn from each other. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I strongly doubt that, you know, people in the, at the time would be arguing about this kind of thing. It's just, it's, it's yeah. just. Been, well, uh, so it's, it's funny. I, I, <laughs> um, I don't know if you've had a chance to check out uh, Jarek Swinger's um, translation of Manchiolino that he just put out. Um, mm -hmm. But he puts, uh, he, he found this really awesome document um, when he was looking through court records in Bologna. And there's this uh, document that he found from like 1870 or something like that. That's a, a collation of different events, like um, trials that happened all the way back to like the, um, like the mid 1500s. And there's this one instance where there's all this court documentation of this street brawl that ends up happening. And basically what happens is, this one guy walks out into the street and there's this guy and he's got this long sword in his hands and he, he pulls his long sword out and he's recounting his, like everything that he's seeing. And he's like, the guy pulled out his, his um, two handed sword, or maybe it was a Spadone or maybe it was a great sword. I can't really tell the difference. And mm -hmm. I was like, <laughs> I read that and I started cracking up and I was like, well, you know, neither can we. I mean, <laughs> that's a, yeah, we, we have no idea what the difference is either. I mean, we have that argument all the time. Like people are like, does a Federer represent a two-handed sword or does it represent a Spadone? It's too long to be a two-handed sword, but you know, they didn't really care about these things. You know, we have all these stupid, uh, sort of, um, sort of just colloquialisms that we, we get caught up on and, and things that are really not that important to, the most important things, which I think are the the body mechanics and mm -hmm. things like that. So, yeah, that's, that's I'm awesome. I'm Victorians, you know, for wanting to classify and categorize and um, <laughs> pigeonhole everything. I mean, you go back and you're looking at the sources and it's like, what do they call it though? It's a sword. It is. Yep. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. It's just called a sword, the spada. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. The Victorians, they ruined everything. <laughs> So, um, as you've, as you've developed your interpretations, um, especially like as you took over your school and stuff like that, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face coming up with your interpretations and how have you overcome them? So biggest challenges that we faced, uh, with interpretations <laughs> is keeping them consistent. I think. Right. I have to say, um, you know, like, like I said, we've got three branches and um, the biggest challenge about uh, interpretation is like we we stick with that play that we were talking about the uh, the uh, Morozzo's first play for sword and buckler. <clears throat> we, we take um, Oxford out of the equation because they don't do side sword as their foundational weapon. They do they do long sword. So between Reading and Godalming, the two sort of chapters. Um, We've ended up with two different versions of it <laughs> because because like I've got my version that I learned when I was uh, when I did my my safety test and not, you know, I'm going over it and over it and over it over the sort of decade and a bit. And uh, Matt, who runs Reading, has got his version that he and then he's taught that to his his instructors and they're teaching it to their students. And it's kind of evolved over time. Uh, <laughs> And yeah. I don't think there's actually anything wrong with that. I don't think 
that's a bad thing. It's, it just kind of shows how things do slightly change. Um, and to be honest, our like the original Morozzo uh, instruction is to just go in a straight line. The whole thing is just going forward all the time. But my instructors added a little turn in there, so they do uh, like a, a, a the compass step, yep. and then you're you're rotating around your target with the final few cuts. So we put that in just as a bit because it's only a short sequence, and it's just to sort of test the uh, students' technical ability, uh, etc. But um, what we found is that these two versions have kind of um, evolved with little little changes in them because of you know different people understand things in different ways and on the from on a personal note i don't mind that because that's exactly what would have happened over time anyway Mm -hmm. um so you could say that's a problem like trying to keep it consistent um between the sort of two chapters and we, we 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 laugh and joke about this but you know we do periodically have training days where we all get together as instructors and sort of go over our our curricula and talk about this kind of stuff so that's one way that we can sort of keep it consistent across chapters um but yeah i think trying to i i think of it as you know even though it's like a dead art that we have revived we've we've kind of now got a, a living art among us as a community that is malleable and uh you know evolves and changes because of the people who are using it um and it is all open to interpretation and uh you know it's very very subjective and you can't sort of you know obviously we're working from the sources we're not just making this stuff up um but it's all through the lens of our own experience and understanding and uh etc that this stuff takes place yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's really important too, because I mean, that's basically why we have Marazzo, and that's why we have Manciolino. Because mm. I mean, if Marazzo and Manciolino said the exact same things, the question is, would either of the sources really be that important? The fact that they do have different different yeah. approaches to the way to approach the fight, um, I think, makes them both valuable. You know, like Manciolino very much focuses on like a same guard approach. So you're matching mm-hmm. your opponent's guard um, where Marazzo sometimes prefers more of a counter guard system. And he talks mm-hmm. about counter guards and stuff like that. Um, and that's important because I think that gives us a more diverse approach to build out a bigger fr- mindset and a better mm-hmm. f- framework that wouldn't actually exist necessarily if we were just studying from one of those masters. You know, like, I mean, if, if, you, if you just did Manchiolino, you would probably just try to mirror your opponent's guards and then make your attacks or your defenses that way. Whereas if you do both, if you study both Morato and Manchiolino, you can actually probably be a more complete fencer than, you know, yeah. perhaps even their students because you have that that full framework and that full like idea and, and frame of mind. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that's, that's really awesome. And I, you know, as I've gotten, as I've started to teach, even the way that I teach is a little bit different than my instructor. You know, mm-hmm. his background is very different. So like he came from Kuxol and did Kuxol for like 26 years before he got into HEMA. Whereas my first martial art was HEMA, just like you, right? Mm-hmm. And so 
I've only learned swordsmanship from the framework of swordsmanship, where he's learned it from uh, an Eastern martial arts background. That informs his biases because it, it kind of makes it where like that's the lens that he views martial arts from. Whereas because mine is kind of like yours, where sword fighting is my only sort of framework. And I've grown up in, in HEMA with the treatises in hand. Um, that's like my primary focus. So I, I have less frog DNA because yeah. even though I, I have it secondhand from him, I still have a more refined approach because I have years of experience from people who have been working on these interpretations and working from the text and developing like textual approaches to the interpretations rather than just kind of like, well, this is how we would do it with, you know, I don't know, <laughs> like some <laughs> other weapon and some other tradition. And so let's just kind of do it this way and then see if it works. And then, you know, they kind of like parse that down over time. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's good. It's, it's kind of like a, a process of sanctification. Um, yeah. where you're just like slowly like you know through the generations even like you know your students moving on and and, and stuff like that they'll kind of get rid of um, perhaps some of the the other aspects of of vices that you might have pulled in from somewhere else and then sort of refine those even further and maybe eventually we'll actually get to something that's a lot closer to what the historical perspective on things I don't know yeah I think the more eyes you have on something the better to be honest which yeah, is why sure. Always try and encourage uh, people when they're coming into to learn HEMA is don't don't just sit there and let me spoon feed you the class. Go off and check out Wicta now. Go and buy a book. You know, see see what ignites your interest. You know, not everyone is turned on by the books, but for some people, it's just like um, occasionally, like well, you know, you know, most of the time it's just the instructor has studied the play and then they turned it into drills and then you the student are doing it you go home you sleep you come back next week and you learn the next bit um, but it's nice when people take the the task of uh like you know working at the cold face of HEMA onto themselves a bit and just put in that effort where we're all kind of working to understand it so sometimes we have lessons where we will just give people uh, a passage nice. and go, right, what do you what do you think of this <laughs> what's he trying to say you work it out <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah that's awesome the evidence together and let's see what we all come up with let's put our heads together and you know just as a sort of a is a fun exercise and something slightly different but b so we can genuinely do some actual hemering um what you know like primary source types stuff rather than secondary source learning it from someone who's put the time in to study it before you um there's absolutely nothing wrong with that you know there's people who uh have long and successful careers in HEMA without ever having laid their eyes on a book um uh, but the stuff that they're learning comes from people who have um so you know there's no there's no I'm not trying to shame anyone here but it's it's great if people do sort of take that interest in um the texts um and just see what what they can get out of them and it, it's not easy it's not easy to turn the written word in, in, into um into movements um which is why you know so much and you know like you say there's so many gaps so much like what are they saying here why don't they mention the footwork here which hand is this <laughs> which is when all that frog dna comes in 
whereas people who've already got a kind of physical vocabulary from other martial arts can go, I, I, I know what this is, you know, and maybe they're right. <laughs> maybe they've got, maybe they're onto something or maybe, you know, there is something entirely different there. But, you know, the more eyes we have on this stuff, the more perspectives we get, the more of a clear, the clearer picture I think we start to see over time. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So how do you view the strategic and tactical approach of the Bolognese system? How like do you mean? What, so like, what is your view of how to approach the fight from like a Bolognese perspective? Um, like if you were to kind of explain like, these are the things that I'm watching. Like when I'm, I'm, I'm fighting an opponent, these are the guards that I like to assume. Like okay. these are the attacks that I like to do in these specific areas. Like. How would you how would you explain that? Oh, you want to give away me to give away all my secrets? Okay, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, great. That, that's really what that's really why I have this podcast. I'm actually just like you know like basically just doing tactical research on all of my future that's opponents. Okay, so like I said, that chap who said you why you, what you're doing there, I'm actually just resting. Uh, yeah. That kind of stuff. So I'll come in um and i'll tend to go into something like guardia alta mm -hmm. just because it's intimidating um yes. and i'm not a, i'm not very particularly tall person so i can it's a bit like you know a cat or a small dog tries to make themselves look bigger mm -hmm. by puffing themselves up that's my kind of like here's a tool here's an implement about to come down on your head and mouth all you are i can hit you with it kind of thing so that i just fully go in with something like that mm -hmm. um also, like, you know, coming in with uh, an initial strike to their buckler is, is something I like to do just to mess with people. Yep. So I will come in <laughs> and I will smack their buckler as hard as I can. And then I guess I'll see, see what that does to them. Yeah. Sometimes it's just enough to rattle them and put them off their game. And sometimes I'll just be like, yeah, whatever, Fran. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, just if it's someone I've never fenced before. And if I've been all sort of like jocular with them beforehand, like, yeah, let's play, let's fight kind of thing, then I'll come in and I'll go smack on their buckler. And they're like, what the hell? <laughs> and they're like, right, I've got them now. So get them on the back foot psychologically with something like that. But then it's just, then you've got like the sort of what they call the, the reconnaissance sort of phase of the fight, haven't you? So it's like, what do they do when I do that strike to the buckler? Do they, does that make them want to hit me? Mm -hmm. And then I, so then I can just deal with whatever they throw at me. Does that make them want to retreat? Does that make, you know, are they intimidated by that? Did it work? Or are they un completely unfazed? Or do they just think this is fun, this is great, whatever? So I, I, I do tend to um, fall along the sort of full humours approach to uh, sort of Renaissance sports psychology. I'm very, I'm a big fan of that. It's something that, that Alfieri talks about. So like in that sort of phase of like feeling someone out, uh, going in with a big sort of big move to see what they do or taking just like, you know, a couple of big paces into the ring. Um, what do they do with that? But other times I might want to fake being intimidated. Sometimes I might genuinely be intimidated. Uh, if so, if I'm not, if I'm feeling a bit off my game and the other person's massive or particularly strong or fast or whatever, um, I will just then go maybe into something like uh, Guardi di Testa and keep my point forward 
and just wait to see what they do. Uh, and then and then sort of be a happy camper and camp out and wait to see. But I know that's not a very fun way to fight. But, you know, if you're not feeling particularly on it, <laughs> yeah. that's my sort of self-advice is, you know, just be defensive like that. Um, but, yeah, so that's what I tend to do. I like, I tend to occupy the, what I would call the, um, uh, what's it, the sanguine approach, a sanguine fencer. So, uh, I just like fighting and it's fun. <laughs> I, I'm not particularly bothered about how, whether we get hit or not. We're, we're here to have fun and, you know, we're here for um, a good time, not a long time kind of thing. Um, other people treat free play or competition as I'm, you know, will not get hit. They're just like smoke. You cannot hit them. And yeah. I have a lot of respect for those kind of you know, phlegmatic people who are just like very good at avoiding anything that comes away. They're very, very patient. Um, but my approach tends to be rush in, see what they do, and then go from there. Or stand off a bit, camp out in a in a safeguard, and then strike them with. Usually, my apparently my one of my favourites is uh, a fuss or manka to the face. So oh, yeah. just uh, one of those. Anything that they can't see. <laughs> yep. <laughs> a horrible a horrible rising cut to the hand or the face uh is a is a one of my standards um yeah, yeah. and that that lines up really well too with manchiolino right i mean that's kind of i think he says that in his introduction he talks about basically giving your opponent the same cut like two or three times so that way they respond yeah. in a certain way and then you know that they're going to give that response you know so yeah. he's almost telling you to feel out your opponent and kind of like provoke them to do something or even give you the same same cut. Um, but it's interesting you said that because like the tactical advice that you were just talking about reminded me of something. Um, and there's actually a little bit from Levino um, from mm -hmm. plays like 15 through 17 where he, um, his uh, his muse, I can't remember the name of his muse. I think it's Arantino um, says, now I would like to know which one has the greatest advantage. Is it he who crushes the enemy's sword with accuracy or he who this, this, through the science of agility opposes the crush? So basically the way that Levino uses the crush is like his crush is like strong overbinds, but um, it can also be kind of seen as like um, perhaps even like beating, but I think he has another word for beating. But either way, um, so he's asking whether or not it's better to be aggressive with those like center lines or if it's better to um you know do a lot of sfalsata or uh, mm -hmm. and so lavino responds undoubtedly there's no greater or safer advantage than he who crushes with righteousness <laughs> Which mm -hmm. I, I love that <laughs> rather than he um using agility who opposes the crush uh, because mm -hmm. by crushing rightly uh, we are always binding the sword of the enemy and it can be assumed that he who rightly crushes uh, before he learns the science of is very practical and learned in the plays of agility. The reason that agility remains inferior is that one who's forced to shake to free his vita of, and sword. Um, so shaking would basically be doing like a falsata to get away from it. Um, mm -hmm. um, these are two shakes made in the tempo when the sword of the one who crushes arrives in a straight line. So basically... Mm -hmm you know, dominate that center line, come, come and strike their buckler, you know, like give them a strong cut that they have to deal with because yeah. you're basically forcing tempos out of your opponent that you can then take advantage of. Um, I, I like that. That's, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant approach. 
squeezing tempos out of your, out of your opponent. Yeah, milking <laughs> yeah. them for tempo. I mean, yeah. but you could argue like that's like, I mean, that's like basically exactly what Fiore does with his, um, you know, when when he talks about his Gioco Larga, basically cutting to um, you know like a point forward guard, so that way you can read and react based on what your opponent's doing. You know, KDF does the exact same thing with um, Spreckfenster, where, you know, they tell you to go to long point and or basically that it is long point. And the whole idea is that you're forcing your opponent to respond by dominating the center line and giving them a tempo. I mean, it's, um, it's kind of like a universal truth that I think mm -hmm. a lot of systems follow. So yeah, that's, yeah. Hit them really hard and see what they do. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you put it that way. <laughs> oh, I think my, my, my old instructor said that the Fabris can be summarized as if, if he moves, hit him. If he doesn't yeah. move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't know. Sometimes like, I kind of get the feeling it's like Murato when he's writing, he, it's obvious that the, the ability to increase the amount of written word um, is so new to him that he just kind of throws a bunch of stuff out there and repeats himself a lot of times. But, you know, I can almost imagine him thinking like that he's this like elegant writer and he's really just a terrible writer. And then you have somebody like Manchilino that just like throws so much like humanistic stuff in there. And it's like, you're going to be like Ajax and you're going to go forward. And, you know, and then he goes into this whole long thing about like Ajax's speech and how it was actually kind of inferior to Odysseus. And like Odysseus was the better writer. And you're just like, really? Like, how does this at all relate to exactly what we're doing? Like, come on. It doesn't matter. I've got the floor now. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. going to say what I want to say. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and he's like, I'm going to be brief. And then he goes for like, you know, like 10 paragraphs and then finally actually gets into sword fighting, um, you know, with but, no punctuation. Exactly. But it, and then you take some of these things and these concepts and you can actually like condense them down into things that are like really simple words, you know, like hit them in the middle. If they move, yeah. hit them. If they don't move, hit them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, uh, I guess we just like to overcomplicate things. Yeah, I think, it, you know, we treat the, the, the texts like they are sacred, which, of course, they are because they're the only texts we've got. But, they're, you know, you've got to consider, like, the, the content that people put out now, you know, most of it is just noise. And uh, just because, you know, they had access to printing doesn't mean that everything they put out was golden. It's like you say, like... If you've got the mic, you know, you don't have to, <laughs> you can be, you can be succinct and to the point, but there's, you know, there is a lot of, there, there weren't editors back then, um, as we can tell, because of all the sort of weirdness that happens, but it is about, you know, sifting through to find, you know, the real truth in what they were trying to say. Um, and, you know, you can't be too reverent to, towards the text in, in, you know, and just accept that everything that they wrote down was just like, yes, an absolute truth. Because as you say, you've got two contemporaries who come up with different advice. Uh, so, you know, even if they learn from the same master, you know, they're going to come up with something slightly different for one another because they've got their own 
their own take on it, their own spin on it, their own life experiences. Uh, you know, they've both been in different fights, taught different people. Um, it's all going to be slightly different. Yeah. And it's weird, too, because, like, I mean, for some of these guys in particular, we just don't have a lot of information about, like, I mean, I mean, we know that Morazzo had a fencing school. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that Manchilino was was brought to, I believe, Sesa to to teach in the court. Um, and I guess that provides some level of, um, you know, authority to, to each of them. But, you know, it's like, so lately I've been working through Palladini and, um, you know, he's he's got a pretty illustrious fencing career where he's traveling back and forth between Bologna and Rome. Mm-hmm. And um, I always, I, I, find, I find it so fascinating that he's like implementing the Roman system into Bolognese, but then a lot of times he'll try to communicate an idea that doesn't really exist within like the Roman system. And mm-hmm. so he'll tell you to do something like go into Terza Larga or, you know, Guardia de Faccia a few times. And I'm like, yeah, there you go. So he, it's like he couldn't explain an idea because it, it wasn't quite there. So it, it's like he went back to his roots of like yeah. communicating in Bolognese fencing. Um, and I just, I, I find that so fascinating, but I mean, it, it just kind of goes to show that, you know, like the, the concepts and the ideas as things progress don't always necessarily encompass like all the possibilities of things. And there's a little bit mm-hmm. of survivor bias in terms of what, what authors that we really want to like hold on to. Um, and it, it's hard to validate whether or not they really are, you know, the bee's knees or if they're just some guy that's, you know, trying to charge people a bunch of money like Marazzo. Yeah. Are, are they just the loudest voices, you know? Um, yeah, we 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 well, we won't know, but like you know, as time goes on, as we're discovering more works, as more people are applying their brain meats to, you know, translate and uh, interpret this stuff, the, the clearer, the better our understanding becomes. Obviously, we'll never get it like exactly right, but we can, we can try and get it as close as we can. Yeah, as a community. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I, I keep seeing all these new sources being discovered and, and sort of brought out, like, you know, looking at the new Meyer, you know, the fact that he incorporated the the Senyo, the way that Northern Italians incorporate the Senyo. Um, like, I think about that, I'm like, I'm really excited to see a translation of that just because I want to see what Meyer's interpretation of the Senyo was. Yeah. Whether he had firsthand knowledge of Bolognese fencing or not, just the idea mm-hmm. that he incorporated it in there just to help display his footwork. He's so good at describing his footwork and everything like that, that maybe that can help us get a better perspective of what the Senyo was and why it was used, um, mm-hmm. where we don't necessarily always get that. I mean, there's a little bit of that in, in Dociolini, the way that he uses it. But from Morazzo, he just tells you to have your students step around the symbol, you know? <laughs> And Palladini gives us some information on it, but it's like, even he is sort of vague about what the symbol actually, like how you should use it. He just says basically like, hey, don't forget, you can't use the symbol when you're fighting in in a real fight. So you need to teach your your students measure. And I'm like, well, thanks. That doesn't really help me, you know, but. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a 
case of secret knowledge, is it? It's just, just there's a lot of assumption going on there, isn't it? It's like you've done this in class, but when we did, well, you know, this is these are just like class notes kind of thing. So yeah. it's not kind of there's no net, there's no need to go into any detail to describe because the senyo because you know that's like describing how a bicycle works. We all know that. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, yeah, it's 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 tantalizing and frustrating and yeah, oh, like hopefully like through all these like different perspectives we'll be able to piece it together over time yeah because you i mean like especially with with meyer he's going to be writing to a foreign audience who probably aren't familiar so maybe he'll take yeah. more time to explain it um that's my hope at least i mean yeah yeah it's kind of like so like vigiani so i've been i've been looking at vigiani a, late, a lot recently because i'm on this like kick right now where I'm really trying to understand like the sort of tactical mindset of how to use the guards, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I've been reading a lot in Manchilino and I, I've got a pretty good framework of how I want to approach this, where like, if you look at Manchilino, um, anytime Manchilino basically says that the low guards are only good for parrying, delivering thrusts or doing a falso, right? Mm -hmm. And Marazzo kind of echoes that in his, sort of progression through the guards that happens in the middle of his second book. Um, so I've been trying to understand like this this overall concept and Manchiolino lays it out really nicely because with his attacks in chapter one um, of his book um, or in book one of his book, mm -hmm. yeah. um, if you look at the, the sort of the lead up action, everything from a low guard always starts with either a thruster like a falso to the hand or like yeah. just a falso, right? Yeah. Um, and that's true for all of the low guards, whereas the, the high guards all give cuts. So cuts or thrusts or do sort of crazy things like Mulanete and, you know, <laughs> and then he just starts getting really creative. Um, so thinking of it that way, if your opponent approaches you and measure and they're in a low guard, you understand that because of the fact that they'll have to take a tempo to raise their hand, um, that gives you the advantage. You know that they have these two things as the, like those are your two biggest threats. Whereas if they do raise their hand to give a cut, then you can give it like a contra tempo action or something like that. You've got plenty of time to read that and react yeah. appropriately, right? Yeah. So that kind of led me to look at Vigiani because like Vigiani is writing from a perspective where he came up in the Bolognese tradition, but he's writing to the Holy Roman Emperor and so, because um, he's writing to Charles V, which, and eventually his manuscript is given to Maximilian II, but he's writing for Charles V. And there's, I guess, based on what I understand reading from Wichtenauer, is that he was a sort of a court fencing instructor for the Holy Roman Empire, which means that he was a pretty prominent fencer, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's a pretty awesome position to be in. You got to think that's like... Yeah. You know, for a fencing instructor, that's about as good as it gets, right? Yeah. But the, the brilliant thing about Vigiani is he takes all the guards, and we always joke that he's heretical because he takes all the guards and gives them these crazy names like Gordia Offensiva Perfecta, right? But if you think about what he's conveying is not necessarily the, um, you know, the common name of the guards that would make sense to an Italian, He's explaining this to a German who's never seen something like this before. Mm -hmm. So instead of giving it a name that's based on, you know, a traditional name, 
Yeah. He's giving it something that is actually explaining what the guard is and what it's good at. More logical. Exactly. And so it's yeah. it's actually really brilliant. And if you look at his system in that way, very like German. Of, it, yeah, but it it's it's so it's it's clever in a way because I think it it, it kind of unlocks the rest of the Bolognese system and, and kind of teaches us things that are like really important lessons that I think that we can kind of pull out of there um yeah. and, and help us understand the other masters better. Yeah, I agree. I've got I've got to dig into Vigiani now. I know. <laughs> yes. you know, like, and I've been reading this little this uh, master. I'm like, I'm gonna catch up with you, dude. <laughs> I mean, I've, yeah. I've dabbled, I've dabbled in Lavino and I've dabbled in Vigiani, but I'm not like I say, like I haven't sort of sat down and scrutinized the text. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a kind of learner who goes, right, that's how it's done, and I can yeah. do it. I, I. I have to read it, I have to do it, I have to get a person to read it out to me and I have to have another person there. There needs to be like at least three or four of us to sort of, you know, work it out. Um, but some people like, or maybe you're one of them, can just go, yeah, that's how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not, <laughs> I, wish, I wish it was that easy. No, I mean, I do I do try to read as much as I can. So I'll, I'll go through a lot of different sources. I, I would, I mean, like, Honestly, I wish I had more time because I would love to go through Lavino. It looks so mm. fascinating. Like I, I've tried to, I always try to find people that are interested, just as interested. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to pull you aside and we're going to go do this. Like I finally found somebody that was interested in doing Palladini with me because I've been trying to do it for years. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's such a fascinating source for what it represents in the transition. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's it's a great it's a great source, and I've had a lot of fun with it. It's taught me a lot, um, because it's it's basically Bolognese side sword, right? Like, I mean, his the his Bolognese really comes out in his cuts, because mm -hmm. that's where you get things like Terza Larga and Gordita Faccia, and he you know he I think even like Terza Alta, and he's just like he can't help himself. It's like cuts start happening and he's like i don't know how to explain this in the roman system so we're just going bull and ace that's yeah. that's the only way i know how to explain this right but i finally found somebody that was interested in doing that with me and it's like i don't know i wish i had all the time in the world to just study sword fighting but unfortunately life happens <laughs> real life gets in the way of the, of the important stuff <laughs> it does exactly that's right <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. is why it took us several times to reschedule this this podcast yeah yeah well <laughs> i understand that i mean family first which is the most important thing yep so um what is something that you think that we as a community can do to better improve and better reflect the sources in our fencing oh i think i'm gonna have to go back i think you know there's got to be an acknowledgement, I think, I, I kind of hinted at it earlier, that studying the sources is not as easy as it sounds. And it's not, a there's a kind of, uh, I think people are scared to admit that, you know, they feel like they should just be able to read the books, fence a bit, and then go, oh yeah, I practice this, you know, this master or whatever, and that's my thing. But a lot of our, learning as human students is what I call pre-chewed food so our instructors will do all that hard work and they will you know 
through teaching you they're also learning like as an instructor I'm also learning about the source fencing itself how I teach how you learn um so you know the whole process is is what sort of churns out you know the end result the practice of the written the written sources but I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that um studying the sources is requires a lot of work uh, and it I don't think it works well as a solo activity translation yes you can do that on your own transcription no problem but interpretation on your own <laughs> like you say you're like you're desperate to find someone else who wants to do Palladini with you because you've only got your ideas and it's like, I want to see if they work. I need someone else who's got the same perspective as me to kind of try this stuff out, you know. That's the real urge. Um, so I think it's, I think we need a bit more emphasis on the process of how to take the written word from the page and turn it into movements. So how do, we, how do we go about doing that? We can do it in a fun way, like I said, I described in class, uh, let's workshop this pa passage together and see what happens. But you, you, you've got uh, people in the, in the community feeding back to translators and stuff, people writing these books saying, I did this and, and I think this. And you know, when they bring out another edition of the book, they'll, they'll take any of that feedback into consideration if, if they think it's valid. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a community-wide effort to, 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 to revive these arts. And I think a ton of people are a little bit ashamed to admit that studying the books is hard and um, don't know where to start. So we, I think maybe we can sort of collectively put some effort into um, giving advice maybe to folks about how they can get into the sources and ways to approach them, ways to um, practice uh, and build communities where we're all kind of working together with a common goal. Like you are looking for another person to do Palladini with, for example. So, you know, my approach to that is if someone if, or if I want to write a lesson based on um, a, a particular master, I will find a section that I like, that I want to learn. There's always something I want to learn. I'm not trying to do something to please other people. <laughs> I've got to be a little bit selfish. And like my, yeah. my instructor said, always teach stuff that you want to do, because then you'll be passionate about it. Yeah. So definitely. I will find a set. I'll find something that I particularly want to do. Like my thing this year is pole axe. Um, and and I I really really wanted to learn uh, wanted to learn how to do chinquadea, but there's no source sort of specifically about chinquadea, so I just do knife. So dagger, dagger, chinquadea is a dagger, and that's what my my thing will be. But I will find I will find the passage, and I will break it down into uh, a layered kind of drill, and I'll do it that way. And along the way, there'll be loads of questions from people myself included about how does this work do you take a step here is it with this hand am I going first or does this person go first you know all these kind of questions 
are what's leading us to the truth. So that's my approach to, you know, bringing the sources to life in what I practice is like to take a passage, make it into an exercise for a bunch of people to do and see what happens. And then the next time I teach a different bunch of people or even the same bunch of people, like I, I use my class of guinea pigs several times before I actually did the workshop at an event. <laughs> I had fun with it. Yeah, yeah. So it's you know I'll pass it through that filter several times before I present it to a bunch of people at a paid event. So that's that's the way I'll I'll handle it. Yeah, yeah, and I I think you you kind of touched on something too that I also think is important, and I think there's a little bit of I know this has been a, a common conversation lately with um, people basically talking about gatekeeping in the the HEMA community, mm-hmm. but I think there also needs to be an understanding from a broader audience that it's okay to be wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it, it's okay for other people to have different ideas than what you have, you know, like yeah. I, th- I think a lot of times people will see something that's different than what they do. And they're instantly just like, no, you're wrong because <laughs> I do it this way, you know? Yeah. And it's like, no, that's, that's not true. I mean, like if it, if it works for that person and it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, right. And and how mm-hmm. you had like two different interpretations from Morazzo's first play. Um, yeah. It's like, are either of them wrong? No, Yeah. they're both correct. I mean, it's, it's, it's your, it's your truth. And it's like, and it's okay to kind of think about something one way and just like, let it be your thing, you know, go out, try to validate it. And, you know, if it doesn't work, go back and work on it again. But just because, you know, somebody on the internet starts screaming at you and telling you that, no, it should be this way, you know, then, you know, just, it, it, it's, it's like that toxicity and that noise prevents people from really actually getting into the sources and, and helping yeah. us get to a better place because we do need more voices, like you said. Um, so I think that that's really important. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you can't just be like my kung fu is better than yours kind of thing um <laughs> <laughs> you know you can't say if no one has the ultimate truth no one has the final final word um on any of this which is what's great um you know and you like you say being brave enough to put a foot wrong and say actually do you know the way we've been doing this for the last 10 years i'm going to change it slightly it's like my instructors came along to class after uh, like sort of six years later after being taking the retirement, they just turned up at my class and like a surprise visit. I was like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> sensei is here kind of thing. And, and it was lovely. But the, And then uh, I was teaching a bunch of beginners and Phil, and I was doing like Guadidi Tester and he, we'd always done it a certain way. And he's like, I've been rethinking this and I think it should be like this. <laughs> and he and, I, he and I had a good old chat. And then in the middle of the lesson, I said, said to my students, right, you know, I've been teaching you to do it like this for the last six weeks. Well, we're going to change that now. Uh, so we've, we've adjusted how we do Guadalupe Tester. So how do you do it now? Actually, this is this, <laughs> so is, a, this is a hot topic. This is a hot topic <laughs> conversation right now. So I haven't got a buckler with me, but I've got this like wobble board. <laughs> So, and I know this is a podcast, so it isn't going to... Uh... Oh, that's okay. I'll narrate. <laughs> yeah, so let me adjust my camera here. So the way we'd always done it in the past was like 
couple of here, mm-hmm. stored out, like, uh, angled away from me. Um, so hands, you're sort of, like, slightly lower. Yep. Yeah, sort of shoulder height. Both weapons sort of shoulder height. If you view me from the side, it's kind of like this. And then he, he said, what's important is you're having the rim of your buckler into the full edge of your sword. Imagine my, I'm not holding it like this. Imagine my hands in the center of the grip. Mm-hmm. So you want to have your rim into the full edge, still having your sword angled out and across from you. Mm-hmm. But what's important is this bike leg is yeah. popped out. Um, Interesting. So what that automatically does is it lowers your head and shoulders behind Oh. Weapons. So those two small changes, the rim in the back of the full surge yep. improves the structure enormously. So if anyone does come does. over and smashes me in the head with a big fendente or whatever, yeah. that's massively supported. Then if I was just to do this before we said separate so that this can collapse. Right. But now yep. it's like re- like it's a bit like you're kind of really braced against that back and that back leg because it's sticking out mm-hmm. supports that structure even more but mainly the head and shoulders if i just stick my back leg out are behind my weapons nice. so that's now become like i always did call that my oh crap response <laughs> <laughs> But I find that I, since he gave me that amendment, I find that if something's going, if it's not going very well, or if someone's suddenly coming at me with a big cut, that immediately is easy to do. It's just like, oops. Yep. It's just like a stick your hands out, stick your leg out. Uh, I'm sick. But that's an example. <laughs> that's an example of how we as a school and sort of as martial artists, we shouldn't be afraid to change our interpretations over time. Um, it's just like in, like you know, in science, you, you when you have new information, you update your yeah. your understanding. You don't like go, no, this is the way it's always been. It's okay. I've I've got more information. I can change the way I think and approach this stuff now. Yeah, there's a reason why we think the world is is round and not flat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's it's been a long process of of scientific validation, but you're right. I mean, everything, every interpretation is a hypothesis, you know. And I mean, science is is my background um, for you know my real world life, but mm-hmm. um, you know, it it is it is super important to constantly question everything. You know, if when you start just believing in absolute truths, that's where you really start to find yourself in a lot, a lot of trouble. So, yeah. um, but that's that's pretty cool because also because I I do the same thing with keeping the the edge of the buckler into the edge of the sword uh, when I do my Gordier de Testa. I don't do the back leg out, which I I'm gonna I'm gonna try that tonight with my students. Yeah, but, I, um, I pop your back leg, pop the back leg. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna check that out, but. <laughs> One of the things that I find about keeping the the false edge of the sword into the edge of the buckler too is it actually kind of allows you to get a buckler press easier mm. because like their their sword will kind of get trapped in your sword and it allows you to get your hand underneath and then you can press with your hand your buckler into the hand and then that'll free up your sword for a cut. Um, yeah. So gives more way more control. Yeah, the buckler is a bit less is a bit more active. Mm rather than just waiting to receive a hit something it can do yeah yeah that's that's really cool 
So, yeah, I mean, so you were saying that they, they came and they just kind of brought this new interpretation of, of Gordia to test it to you guys. Yes, and took it out completely as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, um, Not, sorry, another benefit to that guard, I have to say, well, if you were into tactics and things, um, yeah. I'll just take my sponge sword here. So, the other benefit to having that guard tested like that is if you can imagine that you've um, you're, you've just sort of taken that back step, backward step with the back foot, uh, because someone's coming at you with a big sorry, this is my true edge in pink and my full surfing green. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, it's the other way. Green for true and pink for false. So uh someone's coming at you with a big big overhead cut and you you go into God D tester like that, it allows you, if they're coming at you, to just do a cut to the leg, mm -hmm. to the front leg. So you can just from here do that. Um if you want sorry, you were about to say something and I interrupted. No, 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 no. I mean that's I mean what you just displayed is pretty much like everything that Manchiliano tells you, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> from from his defense from Gordy to Testa, it's always just like, hey, just snap a cut to their leg. So yeah, yeah it's perfect. Awesome. Um, so you you do a lot of stuff with events um, and stuff like that. Um, tell me a little bit about some of the events that you're involved with um, and what, what the goals of those events are. So uh, I was talking to um... Yeah, the goals of the events have sort of changed over time. Like when when I started out in HEMA, I was kind of taken aback by um, how few women there were at events because obviously, you know, in my club, my school, there were not a huge amount of women, but there, you know, uh, I think that was kind of really put into relief when you go to an event, a HEMA event, where there's lots of people in a room and you see oh my God, there are a lot of men here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where are all the women at? Kind of thing. And I was just like, where are they? Why aren't they here? Um, and I think that that is even further emphasised when it's a comp competitive event. Uh, you know, you don't get that many women showing up. Uh, at least that was the case back then. It's still not, you know, still not 50-50 uh, now. And I kind of had an idea at the back of my mind back then I'd like to do an event just for women and I sat on that idea for seven years um, and then in 2017 I started uh, well I did an event for about uh, I think it was about 30 of us called By the Sword and um, it was initially just for women um, and it was just women instructors and just women attendees and I just wanted to sort of do it as an experiment just to see what would happen because it's it'll be fun to just like have just just women uh together because that's something that never ever happens and we had a great time um and you know over time it's become um women and non-binary folks mm -hmm. because like um i'm becoming more you know more i'm learning about about people through through hema i'm learning an awful lot about people through HEMA. i know it's, it's crazy right <laughs> it's like, like a i was, I was learning filter. about uh like autistic folks and stuff um there were you know uh, in a podcast i was doing last night i was talking to uh, dominic eaton who works with autistic kids and adults and teaching them hema and stuff and i was benefiting a lot from talking to him so from that i have things like when i run a hema event i always make sure that there's food <laughs> you know because 
pencils get hungry. Um, yes. um, and, there's, and there's water. And I, I will always make sure that there are around 10 people who that they can, someone can go to if they've got a problem. Uh, it could be anything, like wet the toilet or I've cut my knee or anything. Just like, I just need to talk to someone or I just want to hang out with someone or whatever. Anything, they've got someone that they can go to. I don't want anyone to sort of be at an event and feel lost, like a little lamb kind of thing. Um, because, you know, we all go along, well, lots of people go to HEMA events with their pals or whatever, but not always, not always the case. Yeah. Uh, some people like, especially if it's, say, for example, like a, uh, you know, you don't get to go to HEMA events very much or you're the only person in your club who's going or you're, like in the case of By the Sword, majority of the attendees are complete beginners um, and they don't know anyone. And you end up with people coming on the first day, not knowing anyone, leaving on Friday, having made loads of really loads of really good friends. But along the way, you need to know that there are people that you can go to and feel like you're safe, secure. There's someone there to sort of, who's got your back kind of thing. Yeah, that's um, so that's like, that's become a really important thing. Um, so, and having places to go and decompress as well. Um, because you know you're on a is if it's, you think of like a, comp, a competition of, uh, type event or even a workshoppy event, social batteries get drained. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, as much as, as as buzzy and exciting as it is to hang around with your HEMA pals and chat about HEMA and talk about interpretations and have you know all the in jokes and everything, it can get a bit much. And sometimes people do just need to go off and decompress and not have someone going, "What's wrong with you?" kind of thing. Just like. <laughs> just somewhere to go and just um be on your own for a bit is is very important i've something that i've i've learned over time so as an organizer you know my list of things that people need at events is always growing i mean i've organized something like 30 events in my time um not all like you know i've done everything from workshop type things to women only events to uh, just competition-based events. Uh, these, there's the Albion Cup. Uh, there's uh, Wessex League. I was like one of the founders for that. Um, so you know, I don't just specialise in one kind of event. I I do all of them. I think they all have their place because you you do find that some people go to one and not the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the things that I want to sort of provide at events is things that make people want to keep going to them. So, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, look, <laughs> as, as an introvert, <laughs> yeah, you, you literally hit like all of my major things. It's like, I, yeah, sometimes <laughs> I do need a place to go and, and decompress because it does drain my social batteries. Like, yeah, I, it's like, it's the hardest thing, you know? I mean, yeah, it's like after everybody wants to party after a day of, of fencing. And I'm like, I think no. I'm going to go sit in a corner. <laughs> I need a little bit of time to myself so I can I can reset. Yeah, I, I'm an extrovert, so I've had to learn all this. Um, and I've learned that most people in HEMA are introverts, and it's only yep. HEMA that gets them off their butts and mingling with people. So, and that's the time when they usually are happy to do that. But it's even so, it still takes a lot out of them. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think learning how people function, what people need. Uh, is sort of what I've 
you know, as an, I think being an event organizer has probably taught me more about people than anything else. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. I mean, the fact that you take that approach, I think, is is really amazing. And I thank you for sharing that perspective, because I think that a lot of people could really benefit from thinking that way. Um, and I, I think it, it's awesome that you do, because a lot of people are just like, hey, you know, as long as we have fighting, <laughs> people will yeah. come. You know, I, yeah. I don't know where, especially, I mean, the United States is, is so vast that we have so many different regions and, and areas where like people are going to be traveling from a long ways. And sometimes you do get people who are coming from like, you know, maybe one or two people from a club, but um, because it is so difficult to travel. And, uh, and so to have that perspective, I, I really wish more people would kind of focus on those things. I think that's yeah. really great. My job I see it at is I, I just want to take away the obstacles that are stopping people from wanting to do the thing that they love. Mm. So like, you know, when it comes down to it, we just want to play with swords. But there's things that come with that that put people off, you know, whether it's the drinking culture, the party hard culture, um, problematic behavior, uh, you know, the just being stuck in a room with people for three days on end. Um, (laughs) 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 You know, that in itself is, is is a big thing. So having little buffers to or things that will help um, minimize any sort of negatives. Um, I think, you know, I, I uh, have often been guilty of like, like, yeah, let's go out and party hard after the thing. You know, it's all about, it's all about the drinking afterwards, and like, yeah, let's do a bit of fighting first. But then, yeah, you know, you know I'm with my friends, want to have a great time. But you know, not everyone. Uh, wants to go out and uh, get completely wasted in the evening like you know people just want to go and have a quiet chat in the corner about something else or just be on their own or whatever like go and eat cornflakes in their hotel room I don't know but (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think just knowing making people feel comfortable and having options whatever their kind of approach or their background or their perspective I think is important because then you're opening up fencing to as many people as possible and not shaming them for like not wanting to participate in every single aspect of it. Yeah. 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 That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Because I mean, everybody is, is unique, you know, and uh, the fact that you're willing to, to take that perspective, that's just, that's awesome. So, um, you also have a podcast, uh, by the sword podcast, right? Yeah. All right. So tell me about by the sword podcast and where can people find it? <laughs> uh, by the sword, uh, is on most platforms. So it's, uh, it's on Spotify. It's on an I, I, iTunes podcast. I think it's called Apple podcasts, uh, Google podcasts. If you just search for by the sword, you, you'll find it. This is three separate words by the sword. Um, so the, the, the podcast came about because of, of course, COVID. Um, so I was due to have my annual event by the sword, um, in 2020, um, in March. And that was when it hit. Um, so I had 11 women instructors lined up to teach from, 
you know, Russia, UK, Canada, all over the place, France, Finland, like all these great uh, women instructors and attendees. And then it's like, boom, there's no event. <laughs> it got put off, it got put off. And I was like, but I really want to do something. I, and then I, you know, it's when everyone was sort of, it was lockdown one and we we're all stuck in our houses and everyone, of course, everyone came out with a podcast and uh, I, I didn't. <laughs> <Not too. laughs> I didn't initially, I, I never planned to come out with a podcast. So I, I got an, I got an Instagram um, account for by the sword and, uh, and I said to my instructors, well, we're not going to be able to do the event for a while, but how do you all feel about an interview? So like get to know the instructors kind of thing. So they're all like, yeah, down for that. So one by one, I interviewed each of them on Instagram live, um, which means that you have to be watching the whole stream to get the interview rather than sort of listening it, listening to it at your leisure. And folks were saying, I like these interviews that you're doing. Um, well, I, I did those 11 interviews and then I ran out and I was like, well, I can interview the the folks who taught at my last event and the year before that so I, I i ended up i was doing two interviews a week um oh. <laughs> i was doing two interviews a week you know i said as i said i'm an extrovert i need i need people people yes. <laughs> and i was like so i was doing two interviews a week uh just on lives and and people started to say to me i like these but i can't always catch them because you're in the uk i'm in the states it's a funny time for me and I said, uh, oh, uh, I, I started to record them and then say, well, you can watch them back. And then it's like, well, do people really want to watch back an hour long video of, of me talking? And then someone said to me, could you turn these into podcasts, please? And I was like, yes. So I did. Uh, I started up. Um, I started up a, uh, a Patreon. So like to support it because it's work, you know, uh, doing this yeah. stuff um i've got a patreon now so people can support my work uh, i'm i'm now only doing one a week uh but i ended up with like a backlog of 80 interviews recorded wow. so i was <laughs> when i when i launched the podcast i was releasing one a day from my backlog so it was every day it was a new podcast um and then eventually it caught up so now they're coming out once a week um I started like series season one was just women instructors because you know I've got a real bee in my bonnet um I've got a bit of a reputation for this for sort of trying to sort of show the world that there are more women instructors out there than people think um because a lot of events when they're built all the instructors just about all of them are men and I made a promise to myself that as, a, as an event organizer that I'm never going to organise an event again that isn't at least 50-50 uh, representation on the on the board on the bill. Uh, so I will either do uh, events where half the instructors are women or all of the instructors are women. And I've done events where, like I say, all the attendees are female or non-binary. Or I'll do it where just just uh, the instructors are women and anyone can go which I don't try and I don't those ones I don't kind of sell them as a kind of women instructors I just they're just like swords of summer swords of spring and swords of winter the ones I've done in the past and they've been very successful and they've got a very different vibe I found to uh 
uh, in events where um, the instructors are all men. It's, it seems to be, it seems to draw uh, a more, a greater gender parity. You tend to get, get more like 50-50 representation in the, in the attendees. Um, and it's a lot more chilled. People have more fun. <laughs> People have more kind of what I call a playful attitude. Uh, yeah. They're not, they're not like mucking about, you know, they're not just, they are just having fun being with people uh, and relaxing and doing the thing that they enjoy. It's a lot less kind of tense. There's a bit less like, you know, yeah, big serious martial artist come. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's a playful thing. I think martial arts is, is a playful thing. Um, but yeah, so going back to the, 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 the podcast. So the first season was just women instructors. And I think I've made my point now. I interviewed like uh, something like 90 women instructors. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, even, even now people are like, you forgot about this person. I'm like, yeah, I'm <laughs> about her, don't worry. So, <laughs> so yeah, the first one was like uh, women and femme presenting instructors. And then uh, second season was um, uh, makers and merchants. So all the people who make our HEMA gear. Uh, well, as many as I could get my hands on. And anyway, so like people like Marco Danelli, Natasha from Purple Heart, uh, who's been around forever. Uh, it was really interesting talking to her about, you know, how Hema scene has changed over time, what people want now compared to then and stuff and what's possible and what the future holds and things. Um, and then my third season, uh, which is just finished, is... Uh, is I called it arms dealers. So it's all antiques weapons uh, collectors. And this is really interesting because like us as, as HEMA practitioners, we know loads about how to use this stuff, but we don't know anything about the weapons themselves. Well, some, some people do, but that's not what all of us are into. So like finding people who are like, know loads, like have the actual real object and can tell you everything about it. Um, is really really interesting um, and now uh, the current season is just open so like I've just asked people to just say write to me if you want to be on the show um, and I'll I'll fit you into the schedule and I'm I'm all booked up until next year now uh, with interviews yeah that's awesome uh, <laughs> but okay in between the sort of weekly scheduled podcasts I occasionally do uh, other ones that I where I've just been chatting to friends like online and they've gone, this would make a really cool podcast. And we'll do it. We'll do one that isn't a live stream that we'll record um, off air. And um, I've done a couple with um, some friends about mental swords and mental health. Mm -hmm. So talking about, you know, as, you know, as a sort of community, how we can support our mental health and things that come up for us as martial artists uh, in a pandemic and everything, and how we can support one another as a community. And, uh, you know, I think there's things in a podcast that you can say out loud. This is something that I've discovered. It's like you can say stuff in a podcast without fear of, of terrible consequences because it's a discussion. Yeah, that, exactly. Like, if you did that in a Facebook post, it would be, you know, all hell would break loose. It would be <laughs> yeah. an absolute, you know, poop storm. Yeah. Um, but if you talk them, if you say them out loud in a podcast with in a, with other people, you can go through this stuff, and people 
respond genuinely they respond with authentic kind of like i was listening to that thing you were talking about and that absolutely rings true for me i want to talk to you about such and such so that's kind of like just through doing things like that has sparked all kinds of like further discussion and another kind of podcast i do is with a couple of friends of mine who are both historians um and yasin suriadis and uh, elizabeth champion and we talk about we talked about the new Maya text, well, the new Maya, new old rediscovered Maya. Yeah. <laughs> and we did it like from a historian's perspective, like, what do you think of this? You know, uh, and why did it go missing? And why is it back? And how, how do we how do we approach this and stuff? And then we looked at chivalry. So getting, you know, their take on chivalry, what chivalry is, why it was important and how it applies today, things like that. So, yeah, the, the podcast is really taken on a life of its own i think it's fair to say yeah that's fantastic i mean i'm gonna have to go back and and listen and, and get into your back catalog <laughs> a little bit i know that i had talked to eleonora um just after you had so um that's that, that was actually the first that i had heard about it but i and i've definitely listened to it but, cool. um yeah it's, that's awesome so um you said you're on patreon um how can people find your patreon to support oh, you uh it's patreon.com forward slash sword women sword women okay yeah and you can pay as little as a dollar a month or some someone i know it's recently paid like 10 bucks a year or something like that so um, there's cool. lots of options and you get lots of benefits as well so like you get one-to-one time with me um like i can help you like you know people sometimes want to talk to me about setting up a hema club because that's something that i've done um running events, uh, just your training in general, things like that. That's all kind of stuff that I can offer. Awesome. Well, cool. Well, Fran, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and, and talking to us about the, the Bolognese system. Um, I really appreciate it. And your perspective has been very enlightening. Um, <laughs> you've given me so many good ideas. Um, so I, I can't thank you enough for that. But yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. And that concludes another episode of Le Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast. Thanks again to Fran for coming on and um, having an awesome chat. I just had gained so much perspective from that conversation. Um, can't thank her enough for being my guest on this episode. Um, just wanted to give everybody a heads up that next week's episode is going to be with Devin Borman, the man that probably needs no introduction at this point. Um, we're going to talk about what it means to sort of take your fencing from being a pretty good fencer to being a really great fencer. Um, we're also going to talk about the upcoming Bolognese event uh, that he's uh, going to be hosting up in Vancouver, Canada, and also just really good stuff. So um, really looking forward to getting his perspective and uh, looking forward to that episode. So stay tuned for that, my friends, and uh, stay saucy. <laughs>